everybody. I hope that you are having a great end to your summer here in August of 2022. We've wrapped up season two a few weeks ago, and we're getting tapings done for season three. We've already got several episodes queued up and ready to go for you guys. But in the meantime, I've got some bonus content that I'm going to share with you guys. These episodes are already on my YouTube channel, but I'm re-editing them for you here on the podcast, which is also pushed over to the YouTube channel, by the way. If you're listening on one of my podcast platforms and you like YouTube, you can go over there and listen to it there as well. So anyway, today we're going to start with an interview that I did with my colleagues, Stephanie and Dan Holmes. They are also coaches. Stephanie is a therapist in this space working with neurodiverse couples. Dan is actually neurodivergent himself and Stephanie is not, but they're married and they're going to introduce themselves here for you in just a minute. This is a replay of my interview with them from, I think it was last year. I don't actually have the date in front of me right now. It was such a great interview. They are both ministers and a lot of you are of Christian faiths that listen to me and work with me. We have a really interesting conversation, especially about how there's just been a lot of confusion about how to be selfless in a neurodiverse relationship and about the roles and expectations that are present in Christian relationships. Those of you who are secular or of other faiths, I really think that you're going to get something out of this as well. So stick around. But before I I go ahead and roll that footage, I want to just let you know that this fall, I'll be doing the workshop again for the communication program. If you missed the live workshop with me in July, you really missed out. I've totally revamped this program, you guys. This communication model that I have is one that I designed for my own personal relationships, and I've been using it with couples and with clients and partners, and I use it in my own family. It's just a very different way of approaching communication and it breaks it down in a way that really no other communication model does. You can get started learning for free in my Battle Busters modules, which are on my website. Just go to crackthecommunicationcode.com. That's video-based modules that will get you started. And then the self-paced course or modules are also there, Relationship 2.0. That is the self-paced version of what I will teach live in the workshops. I'll be doing these workshops periodically throughout the year. I really encourage you to access the self-paced modules first so that you're familiar with the curriculum. It's kind of like read the book before you go to see someone live speak at an event. The next live workshop is going to be on October 21st. So keep an eye out for when registration will be opening up for that. Get yourself enrolled. It's a half-day workshop. It will be from 12 to 4 p.m. Eastern, and I hope to see you there. So now I'm going to roll the footage, though, with Stephanie and Dan, and enjoy. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I'm going to just actually ask you to introduce yourselves, because I think you can probably describe yourselves better than I can. So please tell us a little bit about yourselves. Hey, well, um, I'm Stephanie. I'm Dan. And... um, First of all, we um, were the podcast host of Neurodiverse Christian Couple, because we are a neurodiverse Christian couple. And we started that um, podcast and our ministry to help other couples who are neurodiverse kind of make sense of their journey, know they're not alone, or answer questions that are a little bit more um, specific to faith-based couples. 
um, but we discovered our neurodiversity kind of later in marriage. Um, child was um, diagnosed first, and uh, here we are today. December will be 27 years. Wow. Congratulations. You got that. That's a big anniversary coming up. You know, um, having a child diagnosed on the spectrum is kind of that gateway for so many couples to kind of... For, for us to, to recognize, wait a minute, hold on, we may have neurodiversity in adults too. I see that all the time where a child or even I've had gr uh, grandchildren diagnosed and a grandparent will come to me and say, I recognize this in myself. And so that's just a really common story that I, uh, or narrative that I see a lot. And do you guys see that a lot too? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, you you mentioned um, that you guys are faith based, and you know my my practice. Sorry, I'm I'm looking around at all my monitors. I've got my notes and comments and everything. Um, you know my practice uh, is not just faith based. I have I have secular folks. Uh, I do have faith based faith based folks as well. And some of the things that we talked about in our pod in your podcast um, really apply a lot to to my faith based community. But I think some of the things that we have to talk about that maybe specific to the faith-based community still applies that a lot of it still applies in a lot of ways to those folks who are who are uh, secular so i if you're listening and you're secular i really encourage you to stay on and listen to what we have to say here because uh, i think that this really may apply to you as well because some of the values um that are christian uh, may still show up in other ways in other relationships um, and still apply in a lot of ways. So yeah, I, I want you to say, um, so one of the questions that I wanted to start with, um, I'm just going to throw a, a big, huge one at you guys. <laughs> you guys, they're probably like, what is she going to say? Um, so something that, that has come up a good bit in my faith-based community, particularly for wives who are wanting to be uh, they're, they're wanting to serve their husbands and they're wanting to defer to their husbands as the leaders in the family. But, and, and I'm talking about a couple that is, is a neurodiverse couple where uh, there's a, a husband on the spectrum and a wife is neurotypical. I have women ask me, how do I do this? How do I submit? Some people use the word submit. Some people use the word, um, how do I serve my husband? How, how do I um, how am I, how do I be, how should I be selfless when my neurodiverse husband sometimes struggles to recognize the needs of the family members, of me, of the children? How do I do that? So I'd love to, to, to hear your opinions or your thoughts on that. You want me to go first? <laughs> You're going to go first. Um, so Dan here is going to talk a little bit more about kind of our concept of where that comes from in Ephesians 5 on servant leadership. Um, but so Ephesians 5 is usually that um, quintessential chapter that that is usually spoken about. But when you're, we got, we're both reverends, we're both ordained ministers as well. Um, we just want to kind of remind our listeners that first, well, when you have Ephesians 5, you're going to look to a whole letter, which is to a letter to Ephesus. And as you read the whole letter, it's about, um, now that you're a part of this body of Christ, now that you are a believer, you are out of this world and you are in this world, um, submission is kind of mutual. It even talks about submitting to neighbors and other people and, and your congregants. And um, it starts with submit yourself one to another, like mutual um, submission. 
So when we talk about um, servant leadership, we're more of the mindset that it that leadership is a servant-based leadership and not a domineering command and control because I said so. I don't believe, um, and I think the Greek supports me, submission does not equal permission. Permission is obedient. And so um, submission and deferring, we come at it as more of a so whether you're neurodiverse or neurotypical couple, you're putting the other ahead. You are being mutual or you're being reciprocal. You're submitting one into the other. And so I think you do have to take into consideration that if the one who is in leadership is making, making poor decisions, especially financially, or like you said, not considering um, the, the family as a whole system, I don't believe women are ca- called to check their brains at the door, you know, if a child needs medication and the other spouse doesn't want to pay for it or says you can't have it, and I've heard this before, but it's not not submitting by going and buying the medication. The child has two parents, and um, if one is not going to make the best decision for the child, then the other can go make the best decision for the child, and that's not a submission issue. What would you add? Mostly that the the relationship is a team, uh, and each each of the members kind of divide the roles appropriately. Uh, we we divided our roles appropriately, not because they fit some kind of mold, but because that's what worked. Uh, it it was played to our strengths, um, and that's you know that's kind of the, that's the way we organized it. it what worked for us after trial and error, this seemed to work, that seemed to work. And we landed in some place that stayed kind of stable. And for us, the roles seem, might seem, you know, different than what works in other people's house, but it's what turned out to work for us. I, I think that's from a practical perspective, you make an honest conversation of these things need to happen, right? I mean, just to run a house with kids that are things like that. You've got to pay bills. You've got to earn the money. You got to send people to school. You got to go to the doctor. You got to go to the dentist. You got to go to ball practice. You know, all those things that, that are part of life, they have to function. Somebody has to do them. Somebody has to make them happen. And to make them all one person's job is unfair. Uh, I don't use the word fair often, but it really is unfair. It, it is putting the burden on a single individual when there are clearly two individuals and you go all the way back to Genesis that were, that are responsible for the family. This is the organizational unit that, that God created for the family. And it is both persons responsibility, uh, to, to organize and to make all of that happen. And that's, that's my take on that. Yeah. So. What would you, um, what advice would you have for couples? So, so Stephanie, you were mentioning, you know, if a child needs medicine and, and one person is saying no. Um, and, and then Dan, you talked about dividing up those responsibilities based on what works. How do you go about determining for, particularly for a neurodiverse couple when there may be some, some mindsets that are kind of rigid? How, how, what advice do you have for a couple? in figuring out who is the best person to make certain decisions or to, to being in certain roles in, in the, the family for, for the couple, but also for parenting. I think it starts 
you know, with the, it starts with some self-reflection and um, humility and vulnerability, um, being able to be open and talk about, you know, what your strengths and weaknesses are. When, when he gets to a little bit more of the roles, I mean, I had to come to terms with, I'm not the better cook. Uh, I'm not. I am not the better cook between the two of us. Um, but as you're kind of, I mean, we typically, even in neurotypical families, Typically, the mother um, tends to have more of the child role because intuiting, right? So things with children require some intuiting and it requires kind of knowing what is developmentally appropriate um, for this child. And so sometimes with the rigid thinking, there might be an expectation for an eight-year-old child um, that a 13-year-old can't do. And so there might be stuffing in for some discipline that's too strong. And that's sometimes a common argument um, that I'm mediating is, and the husband will say, well, you're emasculating me. You're taking my role of discipline. And the wife's like, but I, I can't let you step in and speak that way to our eight-year-old child and expect that they're going to act, you know, like a teenager or a five-year-old. You gave them a one, two, three prompt as if they were going to do all those things you said and then a hard punishment. You know, there's, there's still, if you have to stand in and defend the weak. Um, and the child is there, um, with, you know, with two parents. And when something's not appropriate, you can't just let inappropriate behavior happen. So not always, but it tends to be um, the wife is a little more intuitive. So I think intuition and that nurturing and compassionate care, whoever tends to be more um, strongly gifted in that should probably be making more of the children's decisions and what, what they need. They need therapies or helps or tutoring. That, that might be the role of the one who's a little more intuitive and aware of what's going on in the whole system and not just bits and pieces of the system. Okay. I have a question. So I'm going to go ahead and ask it. And then Dan, you can kind of tack on to, to what she just said. So um, you know, some of my neurodiverse men in particular um, may struggle to, with, with emotional empathy or, or recognizing the emotional needs of, of, wives and children. And so I, I have men in my program that are very dedicated to their families and, and very, you want to do, you know, want what's best for their families, but really struggle to understand the emotional needs of their, their wives and their families. And they, their, their, their wives and are, are telling them this is what's, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing, what I'm needing. And as you were saying, Stephanie, moms, a lot of times are able to intuit those needs or recognize them in children. Dan, what, what advice do you have for the men that who, because I, I have quite a few men who tune in here on YouTube, um, for the ones that the, the emotions don't make any sense to them. They're like, this just doesn't make sense to me. So we don't really have to, to attend to this. What advice do you have for them when wives are saying, this is real, this is legit? <laughs> what was that, Stephanie? That's a connector. <laughs> right. I, I can't think of any aspect of life where because I don't understand it means I get to ignore it. Right? That, doesn't, that, that perspective, that attitude doesn't play anywhere else right? Your car is breaking down. It's running out of oil. It's running out of gas. Ignoring it doesn't help. Um, 
And in probably no other situation, does a reasonable individual say, you know what, just going to ignore that because someone will come by and push me. I mean, that it's illogical. It just doesn't work. So to use that same argument here is giving up. Um, it's, I don't want to try. I don't know how to try. I'm scared to fail. Um, all of those, some of those, the best approach from a guy's perspective is to learn to be teachable, uh, in, in, you know, I mean, growing up, going through school, going to work, doing all of those things, you progress, you get better. And then for some reason in a relational situation, we decide, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm good at this and stop it. I can't, I can't naturally feel my way through it. So I quit. I give up. I'm not going to attempt. It's hard. Um, it's, it's unnatural. It's, um, you're frequently wrong and all of those things and all of those things are uncomfortable. Um, but kind of to go back to tie this to the question that was before this one, you know, the easy wins on who does what is what you're good at, what you like. Those are the easy wins. At some point, you're going to get to the vision of the household that maybe neither one of you just like. At some point, those things still have to be done and someone has to do them. And you can either be teachable, going back to even prior, and be a servant of the house, or you can overburden someone and the family suffers the consequence of that hmm. And to appeal to those that aren't very empathetic, that is illogical. Okay. Right. So, Stephanie, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Um, you know, I think that willing to be teachable and willing to be wrong, uh, because sometimes a lot of my AS, AS male clients are so perfectionistic uh, it's a performance-based, you know, I, I want to serve by task. I want to serve by providing. I want to serve by just, you know, maybe taking a child to and from what is convenient to me if I feel like it versus being dependable. But there's this um, sometimes unwillingness to kind of go in. Like I tell the guys I work with sometimes, you know, when you're a wife is having emotions and she needs to share that with you, you've got to learn to be a firefighter. It's not a natural thing people to run towards something that is heat or uncomfortable, that ENTs and law enforcement people are, are kind of trained to go toward uh, something. And so not that me lives are natural disasters or anything, but when that's making you feel uncomfortable and you quote feel the emotional heat, your tendency is going to want to be to back off and shut down and not inquire. And it usually is, well, I'll just let her calm down and give it a couple of days. And then, you know, if she doesn't bring it up again, it's okay. But that's not what's going on. And so learning not only to be teachable, but to be vulnerable, um, that you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So the way that you can know is to ask. And early in our marriage, that was 
problematic because he would say I used emotional logic and he used real logic. <laughs> and, um, so when I would say something that when the girls needed something or I needed something, the two approaches were either I was not using real logic and my emotional logic was flawed or and a scripture verse, just learn to be content without it. So you'll be more spiritual if you just learn to be content. Learn to live like I'm living without those needs and everything will be okay. So that's also another kind of scripture that gets thrown in there as a weapon in um, neurodiverse relationships is you just hang, if you have a need or expectation and I can't meet it, instead of me trying to learn to serve better, you just need to learn to be more spiritual and not need it or have it. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's really where it's really helpful the 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 faith-based perspective that you guys have because I can really see how scripture can be used as a weapon sometimes and and I definitely want to get to that uh that more here in, in just a sec. Um I love uh the analogy you used Dan of the car that if there's something wrong with your car and you're not you know you're not skilled and knowledgeable about cars but you know there's something wrong you can my best friend's son, who who happens to be on the spectrum, um, his car's just this week. His car's it was squeaking. There was a squeaking noise coming out of the the wheels, and they thought it was the brakes, but it turned out it, there was some serious rust under there. And right as he got there, um, the calipers I think melted to the brake pads. It was really a serious problem. The thing is, he knew to go to a mechanic because he he knew he didn't know how to fix it. And I think that's such a valid, valid way of saying, look, just because it doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't make sense, we don't know about it, we don't understand it, doesn't make it really a, still a very legitimate thing. So I love using al analogies, and I think that was a great one. Um, I want to just say that uh, we've got a couple of comments. Um, so Nathan is saying, um, yes. Not comprehending something is not an excuse for not listening. Um, and he also says, but us men may need help with getting caught up. Um, and I think he's talking about, and he goes on to say, I, I like how you mentioned being coachable and teachable. So it's important to recognize that we don't know everything and that wives and husbands are going to have strengths that we don't have. And one of the things, one of the words that I use a lot is curiosity. And, and I really encourage, encourage people, if you don't understand whatever about your partner, be curious about it instead of telling them, no, that's not legit. That's not real. That doesn't make any sense. Be curious. And that's that teachable, coachable moment. So let's, um, let's see. We have a question here. Now, Nathan also asks, he said he's going to be a new dad. And he wants to serve his two sons and wife. And it's just curious about how you set a Bible reading structure. So this is, you know, do you have any, any thoughts for him on that? Well, it's going to be difficult, right? Because you've got eight children of different ages. And so sometimes I think um, we in the Christian faith make it too hard. Like we need to have a time and we sit down and we do whatever. But I think when you have young children, um, part of that can be in the car. It can be the music you're listening to. It can be stories that you're listening to. I'm not just saying put on a video or something and um, baby, let the baby sit. But uh, while you're playing, while you're doing something, while the kids are in the bathtub, you can engage them 
um, about things about scripture or the little kids' Bibles and you're introducing stories because it's going to be um, developmentally with, with babies and toddlers and, you know, older children. You're, there's going to be a while that not everybody's on the same page about what they can do and handle. And so sometimes some of my uh, faith-based couples have kind of an unrealistic expectation. They're going to get like a 30-minute something in with, with children and family life. And so that it, we kind of like to work smarter, not harder. Um, it's got to be intentional. It's got to be um, uh, it's got to be top of mind, as Dan always says. And then go with the times you are together and be like, how do I teach this? Yet? How can I even use this toy or this movie that we just watched, you know, to talk about something about God or scripture or our faith and impart that on? It really doesn't have to be. Sometimes it gets too too hard when it gets like there must be this like curriculum based things. So I'll just say, let your play with your kids and let them ask questions and let teach them how to be curious about the things of God as well. Yeah, you go ahead. It's a lot of times you 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 learn more. You're not trying to learn everything about every story in one moment. So it could just be playing stuffed animals and naming them Noah and the sons. Why? Because now you've introduced names. Now the next part you play stuffed animals and it's uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. What you're doing, well, you're introducing names, you're introducing familiarity. You get into another conversation later, they continue to get over. And now you've brought in more aspects of the story. So it, it doesn't have to be a full dump, right? I mean, you don't have to drink from the water fire hose. Just introduce introduce characters. Then and you can do that wherever. You could be playing on the ball. You could name your dog that. You, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can introduce ideas when they're young that you get to reuse that learning as they get older. And then, you know, you, you, you buy a puppet show. I mean, you, yeah, we, we had a puppet show. So, <laughs> we did too. I am puppet. You know, there's a lot of ways you can do it. That's not just everybody sitting down in a circle in a book. Uh, it, as good as and effective as that is, there are other ways, especially with children, that you could probably be more effective and even be more uh more recollective it burns in a different kind of memory when you engage in a non-reading way one of our memories is actually when our youngest well our oldest daughter when she um came to christ um, i don't camp but um they wanted to camp and daddy had just gotten a new uh tent and so we put it in our living room and we were having to camp out in the living room with the fireplace you know no bugs clean and all this kind of stuff and we were just reading our little children's Bible with the flashlights and all of that. In that small little moment, uh, our oldest daughter, you know, wanted to ask Jesus, you know, into her life. And it wasn't anything big. It wasn't really even planned. It was like, hey, let's read this book. And we did. And, you know, it just took advantage of the moment that we had. Um, and kind of letting them ask questions and lead the way in that, too. Yeah, I think those teachable moments, it, it, this really applies to all of our values across the board, whether it's it's faith-based values or uh, just the values that we're, we're wanting to teach our children, ethics and morality. And and we have to look for those moments, those opportunities. And I, I, I'm i glad you brought that the point up, Dan, that having that routine and that schedule oftentimes is what particularly neurodiverse folks sometimes feel drawn to because structure and routine is so important to them. And so wanting to set up that structure and that routine seems like the thing to do. But like you're saying, Stephanie, developmentally, a lot of children just aren't going to tune in 
to daily, let's talk about the Bible time. And finding those opportunities are so important. Um, an example that I have, my son was on a, a baseball team for a few years that was faith-based. And so they would they would have devotionals with the boys, but they that their intentions were were so good, but they would have them. So we would have two-day tournaments on Saturdays and Sundays. And by the end of Sunday, we'd played five, six games. The boys had usually just lost their last game because unless you won the tournament, you lost the last game. And they would have their chapel on Sundays after that last game. And I, I'm watching all the boys, you know, you know, they're sitting there with their hats on their head and just kind of zoning out. And, but so I, I just remember thinking they're not absorbing any of this. But what they did absorb was the moments during the game when uh, a, a player would get frustrated, he'd struck out and he'd throw his bat down. And then the coaches would pull, pull them over to the side and teach them and, and guide them and not, not shame them, but teach them how to, to handle those moments. Or if another coach was yelling at the other team, they would emphasize to their players that's, that's not who we are. That's not who we're going to be. And just use those moments. Those were the moments that I think the boys really absorbed so much more of, of that, what, what was trying to be conveyed. And so I think everything that you said is just so applicable to Nathan's question um, about how to, how to teach and to use, just use, be an opportunist when, when, the, when children are, are more ready to absorb it in the moment. Um, Let's see. He says, uh, thanks for the awesome advice. And, and, um, and he says, oh, so I'm supposed to learn to tell stories. <laughs> um, okay. He's really good at that. that. He was really good at that. That's awesome. Okay. So I want to back up here. We've got another question from, uh, Becca on YouTube and she says, um, so can you share about social situations and how to navigate when one person the neurotypical person is social and the neurodiverse partner in the relationship shuts down in those social situations. So um, what are your thoughts on, on that, guys? Well, um, I'm obviously more extroverted and Dan here is pretty introverted. Anytime we do an introvert scale, like he's like on the other end, jumped off the other side of um, introversion. So I think there's care to be taken there, but that doesn't mean, and this is sadly what I see happen a lot in neurodiverse, um, faith-based couples is if um, the AS husband doesn't want to go to fellowship or doesn't want to go to events, doesn't want to join a small group, doesn't want to do whatever, then you can't do it. I don't want you at my house. No one can come to the house. And that's not really okay either. So I think there's got to be some discussion and compromise about how to make it. Instead of avoiding situations, like would never let my child just avoid a situation she didn't like. She's also on the spectrum. So when she would approach social situations that made her uncomfortable. We know we talked about it. What are the things that made you uncomfortable? What is your plan A? What is your plan B? What is your plan C? Where can you go? When you get there, who can you identify and maybe go play or talk with? Some of those same friend strategies work with couples as well. Um, not that I want to say uh, wives need to become like a parent and then parentify, but I do sometimes tell my wives, you know, you kind of, kind of think of yourself like that high-powered administrative assistant, you know, that's walking down with the CEO down the hall, remember so-and-so, don't ask this question, this person just had a birthday, remember to ask that person about job. You're kind of setting the person up for success. So you can use the car ride or you can use uh, dinner or something to kind of discuss what's the event, 
who's going to be there? Um, maybe is there a place you can go sit? And still, it doesn't, for some women, it bothers them if their husbands aren't really social. It doesn't bother me. If we go somewhere and he finds a chair in a corner and wants to sit there and read, I'm perfectly content and happy for that. If that is fine with him, he may find one person he's interested to talk to. Fine. Um, but I think what can happen is everything revolving around, I, I say sometimes the AS person thinks that they're the sun in the universe and, and everybody's got to revolve um, around what they want and need at all time. And I don't think that that's sustainable and I don't think that's servant leadership. Yet we do need to take those things into consideration to make modifications, accommodations and health where we can, but plan for it, set up for success, back to being teachable, vulnerable and good communication. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit about a, a couple that is going to be, uh, we're going to air a, an interview with them next week, what their strategy was, but I want to hear from you, Dan, since you are the introverted neurodiverse, you know, what is, what is your strategy? So my strategy earlier on would have been to find somewhere and be as unobvious, as invisible as possible uh wallflower you know whatever the color of the wall was i was hoping i was that color um and that coat but what later on the older i got the more i realized i was giving up opportunity there was an opportunity to learn to grow to exercise something that I just wasn't naturally good at. I mean, it started with, I think there was an actual situation where I had my, you know, my cheap question list written down on my hand in a sticky note that if I sat at a table, um, you know, I, you know, would actually say, what is your name? You know, cause just, that was the level of, that was just not an obvious question. I'd get there and stuff, but that was vulnerable. That was hard. It took. You know, there's a, you know, there's a few things I'm good at, and this couldn't have been farther from the opposite, right? I mean, it was just that unnatural. So it was an opportunity to exercise something I just wasn't that good at, which is a skill, you know, if let's pick a skill you're good at, maybe you're really good at physics and that's your day job. Well, at some point during your physics career, you need to talk to somebody at some point during that situation you're probably going to interact with uh someone in a non-professional setting you know it's the year-end party it's the whatever there is an opportunity for growth in the company you know you, you set you say a lot about who you are not just in your hard skills but your soft skills mm. and you know the you, you know the occupational world that that's a that's a very important thing and it was a chance to exercise those so you know not you know if there was a woman's thing or there was a joint thing or whatever going even though it's hard going to exercise something that you're not good at to practice a skill that is useful but it is very hard yeah so it goes against your nature. It goes against the grain. It goes against what you're comfortable. It's out of that comfort zone. Uh, but kind of like what Stephanie was saying, we, we teach our children, we, we push them. I, are you, I don't know if you're familiar with that Temple Grandin's book, The Loving Push. I love that book. 
because she talks about how important it is to push our children, our, our neurodiverse children as they're growing up and, and moving into the world to push them out of that comfort zone. So a little bit at a time, right? We don't want to flood them. But that, like you're saying, Dan, that gives them the opportunity to practice and learn those skills and, but, and skills, like you said, that filter over into all aspects of our life because, yeah, we have to interact. We have to interact somewhere, somehow, some way. Um, so I think prevention, you, you talked a little bit um, about that prep, you know, that prep, prep talk. Uh, on the way. And so next week I, I sat down and, and had a chat with um, a couple that, that were clients of mine a, a little over a year ago, and they're just doing so well. And um, one of the things that they learned, this, this dynamic, this thing happened a lot where they would go out and he, he would shut down and, and they, you know, they didn't know how to deal with that. So they learned some really specific strategies about how to plan ahead for whatever the outing is. And sometimes they will go in separate cars. They'll drive in separate cars if possible so that he can leave when he's ready. And she understands that from the framework of neurodiversity now, whereas for a long time, she didn't understand it. They didn't have the framework. And so she thought he was just checking out, wanting to leave, um, not interested when he, he really was. But they've learned now that, that that lets him come, be social, he can be more social, like you're saying, Dan. He's more able to put himself out there when he knows he's got the escape route. You know, he knows he can leave when he's ready. So I think that prep is really helpful and important, too. Um, I want to circle back to the, the scripture um, because, you know, you guys are faith-based, and, and these folks hear me talk all day long about all these dynamics. But specifically for our faith-based community, uh, how do you see um scripture being weaponized that was a, that's a that's a very strong word um so how do you see that happening in neurodiverse relationships okay i'm gonna stop there and as you can see this has uh, been a really amazing conversation that i had with dan and stephanie so be sure and tune in next week for the rest of the conversation that i had with them also don't forget that if you really feel like you need some clarity on your own relationship and the, the partnership that you're in you can always book a consultation with me so just visit me at jodycarlton.com and click the button to request a consultation there's a little form there that you can fill out and uh, we'll get you set up with an appointment so have a great week you guys tune in next week